Father, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. May your spirit shine in our hearts now through his word to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. May now be seated. Our scripture reading for this morning uh, is found in Hosea chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. And you can find that between the books of Daniel and Joel. And I think in our pew Bibles, and some of them, at least most of them, most of them, it's on page 959. So if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you. Uh, Hosea has been a monthly series here at CURC, Christ URC. And uh, last time we were in chapter 8, uh, but now we're in chapter 9. And basically we're still in the section of this prophetic book where uh, the prophet Hosea, just like in chapters uh, four through eight continues this pronouncement, this series of judgment, uh, primarily upon Israel, uh, because the Lord, through his through His prophet, has much more uh, to expose in the hearts of His wayward people. The same way a doctor must expose every facet of a disease uh, to address the problem, and so there's much that we can think about uh, just in the first nine verses of chapter nine. And so, people of God, hear now God's holy word. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord." What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fouler snare is in all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gebeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. As we've been progressing through a series of indictments and judgments against Israel, we've we've seen how Hosea has been called 
to do a seemingly impossible task, to be a prophet, a divinely appointed spokesman for the Lord. And so as our passage unfolds in chapter 9, Hosea sends an unpopular message to God's people in verse 1. He says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. Right? Don't be glad. Don't rejoice. Right? Now, beloved, that's, that's a good way to ruin a party, isn't it? That's a good way to ruin a celebration if you were to show up at a party uninvited and you announce to everyone, you say, hey, everyone, you know, listen up. The party is over. Stop the music. Stop the celebration. Because there's no reason to celebrate. Rejoice not, O Israel, he says. But what was the reason the prophet called them out? It's because Israel was guilty of spiritual idolatry. He says, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You see there, Hosea calls them out. There's no reason to rejoice, he says, because this isn't an occasion for rejoicing, but rather it's an occasion to grieve over your sin and turn now to God. Rejoice not, O Israel. Don't rejoice like your pagan neighbors, for you have forsaken your God and now it's too late. Because in verse 7, Hosea declares, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come, and Israel shall know it. And on a larger scale, at the end of time, beloved, how much more is the judgment against the people who claim to know Christ, right? But reject Christ in their hearts. They say, Lord, Lord, we know you. We know you, they say. But what will Jesus say? I never knew you. Depart from me. And so, beloved, the only hope, not only for Israel, Israel, but for us who are inclined by nature to forget God and, and trust in the idols of our hearts is to rest in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the hope in our passage, right? Is that since Christ reversed the curse of death to redeem sinners, to renew sinners, and to reconcile sinners to God, what do we have to do? What do we have to do but to heed the warning of forgetting God and forsaking God that according to His Word, our, our lives must be marked by steadfast love and true knowledge. That's what He wants from us. That's what He seeks from us. And so in our passage, what judgment does the Lord pronounce to His people for forsaking God? And, and what other offenses does He accuse them of? Well, there are three things we can think about in Israel's history. And it should serve, serve as a warning for us that there is a much greater punishment awaiting those who forsake the assurance in the Lord through Jesus Christ. And we can think about, first, the reversal of blessings, the rejection of the prophet, and finally, the recollection of the past. The reversal of blessings, the rejection of the prophet, and finally, the, rec the recollection of the past. And first, we see the reversal of blessings. And we can see the reversal of God's gifts being 
stripped away one by one in verses 2 through 7. Because if Hosea's command to not rejoice like the pagans hasn't shaken Israel to the core, then perhaps it would wake them up to know how their lives would look like if God was absent in their lives. How would your life look like without God? And how would Israel's life look like without God's blessings in verses 2 to 7, where He takes away food and drink, He takes away the land, the central place of worship, the feast days, and only to be embonded once again by a pagan nation? How then would Israel stand? How is their confidence now? Because in the same way, isn't it our tendency It's our tendency to take the temporary things in life and and, and to turn them and to make them into idols which we think could give us ultimate happiness. And so to shake Israel from their confidence in idols, their confidence in themselves, and their confidence in earthly blessings, the Lord will methodically turn their misplaced joy into hopelessness, especially when they realize they are left with absolutely nothing. In verses 1 to 2, the prophet says, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. So notice there the, the accusation that they have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. And the imagery of whoredom is, is a repeated theme in Hosea, especially it, ha- it, especially it, it has been uh, vividly portrayed in the unfaithful wife of Hosea, Gomer, from chapters 1 to 3. And it reflects Israel's you know, spiritual whoredom of turning away from the Lord and going after foreign gods. But, but what does it mean that they loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors? That's not common language that we hear every day. Well, a threshing floor uh, would have been an agricultural imagery, which was common in the ancient world. And according to one Old Old Testament scholar, he says it was the area, right, the, the threshing floor, it was the area where grain had to be separated from the crops. The crops were laid flat on the ground, while you see a cow or an ox uh, could be used to crush the stalks, which would allow the grain to be separated from the stock. And so the whole goal was to gain the grain from this floor bed, to gain the threshing, from the threshing floors. And during harvest time, to obtain uh, grain was a big deal, especially if grain was an important food source. And, you know, they, they didn't have the convenience of a, a grocery store like today. You know, and it took a, a long time. It took a lot of time to plant and to water and to grow and, and to harvest their crops. And so it would have been uh, for them an occasion to celebrate at harvest, right? But what did Israel do? What did they do? Instead of rejoicing in God for the harvest, who did they rejoice in? They rejoice in the gods of their pagan neighbors, They rejoice in the gods of their pagan neighbors, especially the fertility god Baal, which the pagans worship for their crops to grow. And and as an Israelite, if you 
kept looking over your pagan neighbor's crops, right? Seeing the abundance of their harvest and seeing how their pagan rituals were more joyous, their, their fellowship was more warmer, right? Then perhaps their God, the foreign God, Baal, could get me what I want. Perhaps it's much easier to worship Baal than to worship Yahweh. Because what's, what, what, what does the Lord require? Well, the Lord requires constant self-examination. It requires repentance. You got to go through a Levitical priest. You got to be kept ritually clean. And, and, and to them, it's a lot of work. And Israel thinks it's harmless to compromise and to join these pagan festivities You know, no foul, no harm. No one will get hurt. But how does the Lord respond to their disobedience? The prophet says in verse 2, because you have forsaken your God. You have forsaken your God. You forgot God. The threshing floor and the wine vat shall not feed you, and the new wine shall fail you. You know, I think many of us, you know, would be in great distress if we went to the grocery stores and saw that all the food were out of stock, right? It would be chaotic. I mean, you, you'd call the farmers, but they'd say, you know, sorry. You know, we tried to grow the crops. We, we tried to breed cattle, but they just won't reproduce. And the Lord will show them that this land is not the land of Baal. This is not the land of any foreign deity because there's only one God who owns everything, and that is I. I enabled the produce of the land, and I can also shut it down any time. And that's precisely what the Lord did. He shut it down. But not only will the land cease to produce food and drink, but Israel will be physically exiled. You know, they, they will be transported from the land they always called home to a foreign land that's unfamiliar, that speaks a different language. And the food that they'll eat in the land will cause them to be defiled. And we see that pronounced in verse 3, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Notice how the prophet brings to their mind the land of Egypt. Because just like their ancestors who were enslaved in Egypt, they too will be enslaved, but this time enslaved in Assyria, eating unclean food. Because in the promised land, abiding by the Levitical law of clean and unclean food was important. Observing food laws meant that God's people were to be a holy nation, that as a holy nation, they were to be ritually set apart from their pagan neighbors. Because when their pagan neighbors ate pork, and they did not eat pork, it was a clear sign that they were set apart from their pagan neighbors. They are God's holy people. Yet as one commentator puts it, for Israel to now eat ritually unclean foods would only affirm that their distinctive relationship with their God had been severed. So don't you see how the Lord is reversing the blessings? This isn't something new the prophet is pronouncing because this is what the Lord promised He would do back in Deuteronomy 28, that if they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God in the land, then all these curses shall come upon you. 
And what does this teach us? What does this teach us, beloved? It teaches us that the Mosaic law is powerless. The demands of the law is powerless to make them an obedient people. Just as the law remains powerless to make us obedient. But rather, the law reveals our failure to keep the law, to our failure to live up to His demands, and it commands us, it, conde- it condemns us to death. And this is why, beloved Jesus Christ, in the, fullness of ki- in the fullness of time, had to come to be our second Adam. He came as the one qualified to fulfill the law and to reverse the curse on our behalf so that we who are hopeless in sin, beloved, are renewed in Christ Jesus to know God and to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is our hope, beloved. And to be without hope in Christ today is to be condemned. And that's why the reversal of blessings that we've seen thus far in Israel's history gives us a preview of the ultimate judgment, that the ultimate judgment is much worse for those who reject God revealed in Christ Jesus. And so for Israel, not only does the reversal of blessings deal with the removal of all good things, food and drink, dwelling in the land, but it also involves the removal of the central place of worship. And why? Because apart from the temple, how can worship be observed? How can they abide by what's required in the law if they are in captivity? We see the removal of worship in verses 4 to 5. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. And then in verse 5, the prophet asks, What will, what will you do on the day of the appointed festival? And on the day of the feast of the Lord. See there, notice that even in captivity, all their attempts to worship the Lord would be all in vain. Their drink offerings, their sacrifices, their feasts, they all should not, they will all not please Him. It shall not be a pleasing aroma. And even the bread, which was both uh, spiritually and physically significant in Israel, which signified the sustenance of life, would now be their source of defilement. And so bread, right? Bread, which was once a delight, it, it now becomes just mere stuff, just stuff to curb their cravings. And without the temple, the, and without the temple and the consecrated bread, which was regularly offered in worship, it will now, the bread will now be meaningless. But the good news is that it doesn't remain meaningless for long. Because the good news is that Jesus comes, beloved. He comes to fulfill the meaning of the bread and the temple. For he says in John's gospel, I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. And then in John chapter 2, he tells the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And why? Because Jesus, beloved, is the true bread and the true temple for us. 
He is the temple where true worship among all God's people, both the Jew and Gentile, takes place. And now in Jesus, the living bread is available to everyone so that those who realize their spiritual poverty can now place their trust in Him and have eternal life. And that's why we who live on this side of redemptive history have the great privilege of knowing these things, which the prophets in the Old Testament saints long to see, and for Israel because they and, and, and it's for Israel because they did not heed the warning, but because they did not listen to the prophet, they did not embrace the promise of God. And we see the consequence in verse verse six. For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. And thorns shall be in their tents. In other words, they will not die in their land. And the land that they defile will be laid to waste. With weeds and thorns in their homes. And in verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense or divine retribution have come, and Israel shall know it. And that's true because Israel did know it. They did know it because that day actually came. And and Assyria came and they conquered them. And guess what? On that day, no one was rejoicing, right? No one was celebrating. No one called upon Baal for help because Baal was always dead. He was a mere figment of their imagination. And why? Because God alone demonstrates by His mighty acts that He is the only living God. He is the only living God. He is alone worthy of true worship. And so to forsake the Lord is a dangerous thing, beloved. Because a much more weightier warning than the ones pronounced by Hosea is what the writer of Hebrews warns God's people today. He says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the foot the Son of God, which is Jesus Christ, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? You hear that? So, beloved, we, may we heed the warning by the, by the writer of Hebrews and trust in the one who has already reversed the curse on our behalf, lest we, be tramp- lest we trample the one who is our final hope. May we not throw away Jesus Christ, our only parachute, before we jump out of a plane that's about to crash, beloved. And so not only do we see the reversal of blessings, but the Lord will also accuse Israel of their rejection of the prophet in verses 7 through 8. And that's our second point. And I know that we're only, you know, in our second point, um, but don't worry. You know, the second point, it's like the Pastor Bill said, the last two points are always going to be shorter, right? Um, but, but now we're on the second point, which is the rejection of the prophet, which is revealed in the, la- in the latter half of verse 7, where we read, The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. And who would say that the prophet is a fool and a madman? Who would say that? Well, obviously in our context, it's Israel. Because the Lord accuses Israel of their slander against His prophets. 
Like when Hosea, you know, he comes in uninvited, stops the party. Do not rejoice. Do not exult like the peoples. Don't you see that there's an emergency? That the Assyrian army is coming to conquer you? And how did Israel respond? But mock Hosea as what? A fool. And why did they call him a fool? Because they hated him for what he was pronouncing against them. Yet the Lord reveals their hearts, and it's because, why? It's because their hearts are filled with great iniquity and great hatred. And you know, the irony there is that between Israel and Hosea, who's the fool? Who's really the fool? It's Israel. They are the fools for forsaking their God. Proverbs 12.15 tells us the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Beloved, what's the best counsel that all of us need? It's the counsel of God's Word. Because God's Word reveals redemptive history. It reveals both His law and His gospel. It reveals from Genesis to Revelation that we can be wise so that we don't have to follow the way of the fool. Because the way of the fool leads to where? It leads to destruction. The way of the fool leads to destruction. And how many of us are like Israel sometimes, our tendency to act like fools when we should be wise to hear what the Lord's prophet is warning us? And so if Israel is wrong in their assessment of the prophet, the Lord, on the other hand, reveals what a prophet truly is to his people. He reveals it to us in verse 8. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. See that? The Lord vindicates His prophet. He vindicates His prophet saying that He is a watchman and that He is with God. The prophet Hosea is with me. I sent him. And I have assigned him to be your watchman, to be your guard. Because what does a watchman do? The watchman in the ancient world and even in today's world, these are the security personnel. They're the military police who stand guard on a watchtower. They're responsible to look out to protect their towns, their military bases from a surprise attack. And they can see danger from a distance. They can see what no one else sees. And they must warn the people if danger is coming. And so the imagery of the watchman fits the description of the prophet like Hosea. He is given insight by the Lord. He sees the imminent doom of Israel. And to perform as a watchman requires zero margin for error. It's a very high task. In Ezekiel 33, the Lord says if the prophet fails in his task to warn the wicked to turn from his sins, and if the wicked end up dying, then guess what? Then the blood would be on the prophet. See there, it's imperative that the prophet tells the truth about the wickedness of God's people. And so the prophet who is on God's side is a very thankless job. You know, it could mean not only being called a fool, but your life is constantly under persecution by the very people you are called to look out for. 
We read in verse 8, The prophet is a watchman, yet a fouler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. Right? In other words, he's like a fowler, like a bird trying to avoid the traps that's been laid to catch him. And so not only was this true for Isaiah, but it was true for many prophets. Like the prophet Jeremiah who lamented, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Or John the Baptist who was beheaded for exposing the king's sin. And yet no Old Testament prophet compares to the suffering of the final prophet, Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ was even accused of being demon-possessed and blasphemy, which ultimately led to his death. But then he conquered death, beloved. And he proved to be the prophet that can never be silenced. Because as long as Jesus lives, as long as Jesus lives, his word is alive and his word will endure forever. Amen. Jesus promises everyone that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But beloved, not only have we seen the reversal of blessings, the rejection of the prophet, we turn finally to see the recollection of the past. We see that in verse 9, where the Lord will bring to their minds a scandalous past, a dark past that never faded in Israel's memory. And that's the days of Gebeah. Hosea says in verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gebeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. You know, and I'm sure many of us could recall a few great scandals in the last couple of years that maybe almost everyone knows about, especially because of social media, you know, because if you just... Recall a certain date, a place, person, you'd remember that that day was a very bad day. It was a horrible day. And it's because of the great publicity that scandals bring to people's memory. And for Israel, what happened during the days of Gebeah? And I'm sure all of you remember it, right? But that horrific scandal was recorded for us towards the end of Judges, Judges chapter 19. And without telling the whole story, um, just disclaimer, this is a rated R. This is, you know, a very explicit scene that perhaps may have to later on explain to your children um, what this whole scenario is. Um, but there was a Levite and his concubine who were traveling. And they stopped over to rest in this Benjamite city called uh, Gebeah. And, and they were staring, staying over this man's house. You know, until that evening, there were these wicked men in the city, in the city of Gebeah, these Benjamites, banging on the door, right? Saying, desiring to sexually assault the Levite. And so the Levite ended up giving up his concubine. And what happened? They raped her instead. They gang raped her, abusing her until she died the next morning. How tragic. How tragic that scene. And in the morning, the Levite found her on the doorstep, dead. And he dismembered her and distributed her body parts to the other tribes. 
And it's no wonder this scandal is considered one of the most corrupt and shameful images in Israel's past in which the writer of Judges calls such a thing has never happened, never happened or been seen since days Israel came up from Egypt. And of course, this led to the bloody war, the civil war against the tribe of the Benjamites. So the prophet incorporated the imagery of Israel's dark past to bear upon the corruption of his people in his own day. To show them, as one commentator explains well, that to Hosea, the corrupt behavior of the men who so cruelly violated the Levite's concubine is an appropriate analogy for the depth of the corruption of the people in his day. Hear that? And even if Israel thinks she can forget the Lord, she thinks they can get away with what she's doing. She thinks that she can forsake the Lord to commit spiritual whoredom. Well, guess what? The Lord doesn't forget their sin because what will He do? What will the Lord do? We read that the Lord will remember their iniquity and He will punish their sins. How tragic. And so finally, beloved, as we close, as we've been reflecting Upon Israel's history, the reversal of their blessings, the rejection of the prophet, and the recollection of the past, it remains for us as we meditate on this to be a warning for us today, right? Especially on this side of redemptive history. It should convict us. It should reveal to us that we are no different from Israel. And we are a people that are prone to forget. We're a people that are prone to wander. But the good news is that at the same time, beloved, we are much more privileged. We are much more blessed to receive His grace and His mercy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, if we believe in Christ, if we rest in Christ, that through His word and sacrament, He can assure us today he can assure us and strengthen us today to forsake skin, to forsake sin, and to know God, and to love God. And why? Because as the Apostle Paul assures us, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, beloved, may He be your hope and assurance this morning, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, grant that the world, the flesh, and Satan may not harden and fascinate us, but that we, being at length awakened, may feel our evils and be not merely affected by outward punishment, but be awakened and feel how grievously we have in various ways offended you, so that we may always return to you with real sorrow, and to hate our wrongdoings, that we may seek in you every delight until we at length offer to you a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice of thanksgiving by dedicating ourselves and all we have to you in sincerity and truth through Jesus Christ our Lord.